The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. in New York, 11 a.m. at OPEC in Austria, and here is your top five at five. Stocks set to kick off the second half of the year strong. Futures, they are higher. We'll tell you how this year's big gains compare to years past. The IPO train keeps rolling, and investors licking their chops for today's big trading debut. The big OPEC meeting set to kick off in Vienna and whether that group is ready to put more oil on the market as prices surge. Tough talk from China's president saying they won't be pushed around and making a veiled threat about Taiwan. And it's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's just your usual run of the mill flying car. And it's airborne and it's trending because of course it is on this Thursday, July 1st. And this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, how's that for a cool video to kick off the month of July? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us here as we kick off the month of July. And here's how things look to start the second half of the year. I mean, hard to believe we're here already, right? Wow. Time is like that car, flying. Well, guess what? Futures, they are flying as well. They are nicely higher. The Dow futures up 130, NASDAQ up 24. Now, check out this, dare we say, random but interesting stat. The Dow rose six-tenths of a percent yesterday. Had it risen just one-tenth of one percent more, it would have kept its monthly winning streak going. But instead, the Dow breaks that four-month win streak by nine one-hundredths of a percent Come on, couldn't get one more buyer in there? By the way, weekly jobless claims at 8.30 a.m., likely the market mover today. The market mover for oil is definitely OPEC, a big OPEC meeting today, along with OPEC Plus, Russia, and others, where they could finally start to say they will be adding new oil to the market. We should generally know by, I don't know, 10 or 11 a.m. New York time, but it could drag on later given that it's virtual. And, of course, it is OPEC. We will be covering that OPEC decision for you here all day right here on CNBC. And as soon as we know a production call, you will know as well. The expectation is for an ad of about 500,000, maybe a little more, barrels per day starting in August. But again, that's just the early OPEC scuttle. We never really know what they do until they do it. All right, there's your setup around the world. A lower session in Asia. The South Korean Kospi was the big loser, down about a half a percent. But in the euro, the the euro trade, what is the euro trade? The early trade in Europe, he said. How about that? We are higher across the board. They're kicking off their second half strong as well. Solid gains across all the major averages. All right. We'll get back to the markets and your money in a moment. But right now, some of this morning's top headlines. Bertha Coombs here now with those, including more on that tough talk from China's Xi Jinping. Bertha, good morning. 
Good morning, Brian. Chinese President Xi Jinping offering tough words on his country's resolve to stand up to foreign pressures. Xi making those remarks while laying out China's aspirations at the celebration of the 100th anniversary of its ruling Communist Party. She's saying the country will not accept sanctimonious preaching from those who feel that they have the right to lecture us, but not naming a specific country. The remarks coming amid joint military exercises between the U.S. and Japan over rising tensions between China and Taiwan. Shares of Didi are higher in the pre-market after a modest trading debut. Shares closing up about 1% yesterday after spiking nearly 29% at one point. Stock closing at 14.14 apiece. I don't know if that's a lucky number or not, but it gave it a market cap of about $67.8 billion, making it one of the biggest U.S. IPOs of the decade right now. DD shares up nearly nine and a half, nine and a quarter percent in the pre-market. And it'll be Krispy Kreme's turn today. A donut chain raising $500 million with its IPO, pricing shares at 17 bucks a piece. That's well below the 21 to 24 dollar range it had set earlier. Krispy Kreme's CEO will have more on this coming up on Squawk Box. Brian, that company and Didi's public debuts come amid one of the busiest weeks for IPOs of the year with nearly 20 companies entering the market before week's end. Busiest since 2000, which was the last time Krispy Kreme IPO'd. And I think we both might have been at the Nasdaq for that one. We were in that little upstairs rotunda with those tiny little offices yeah. as well. And you had companies like Commerce One and CMGI. Are these names <laughs> giving you just flashbacks, Bertha? We were both there. I know, really. The sock puppet, right? Pets.com. Kids, if you're too young, Google it. <laughs> I remember the CEO, Krispy Kreme, at the time said, I sell the world's most valuable air, referring to the air in the middle of the donut <laughs> when you bid in. I think I think that might have been the market top itself. Krispy Kreme coming back. Bertha, thank you. All right, well, speaking of back, <laughs> let's get back to the markets. Kicking off a new quarter and a new half to the trading year. And we are getting a fresh look at investor insights. Look at that snazzy graphic with our latest CNBC quarterly stock report, including which three sectors all of you out there believe will outperform the rest of the year. Financials. 67%, top on the list. Tech, 55%. But tied, look at that, with energy. Of course, it doesn't add up to 100. You get to pick the top three. For more now in the markets, generally, we are joined by Christina Hooper, Invesco's chief global market strategist. Christina, good to see you on again and kicking off the second half of the year. Overall, in our survey, investors are optimistic about the equity markets going forward. Are you? Oh, absolutely, Brian. Um, this is a very supportive environment for risk assets. Uh, I think we're likely to see cyclicals outperform uh, for much of the back half of this year. Uh, but in general, I think we're going to see broader participation, as we've seen recently. Uh, this is an environment in which we have um, pent-up demand. Uh, we have uh, elevated household savings. Uh, we have adequate fiscal stimulus, which we didn't get in the global financial crisis. So it paints a picture of a, a strong economic reopening. I think we're going to see increased CapEx spending, and that is going to create an environment uh, that also fuels positive sentiment for stocks. 
And do you believe that CapEx, capital spending, how much companies spend on their own growth, buying new gear, people, et cetera, is going to grow in part because everybody literally and figuratively in many ways got locked down last year? Oh, absolutely. Um, What tends to be predictive of future CapEx spending is past CapEx spending. Um, We saw a a big surge in CapEx spending after the scarcity of spending during the global financial crisis. And I think we're going to see something similar uh, this year and uh, in early 2022 uh, and beyond, uh, just because companies recognize they haven't spent as much, they need to make a bigger investment. And there is this other catalyst, Um, which is labor market scarcity. Um, And actually, we've seen anecdotal information in the Federal Reserve Beige Book, companies saying they're spending more, uh, particularly on technology, to compensate for having difficulty sourcing labor. Uh, So I think there are are a number of catalysts at play, and we will see a significant increase in CapEx spending. Yeah, and part of our stock survey was sort of what are your biggest worries going forward? And I understand there are a lot of concerns about this new Delta, the Indian variant of of COVID. But as I tweeted out yesterday, Matthew Harrison and Morgan Stanley, they note something very important, that mRNA vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, are very, very effective against the variants as well. In other words, there is a lot of hope despite some of these scarier headlines. And our response to our survey, Christina, They did not put a COVID or pandemic resurgence as number one. It was inflation by far. Would you agree with that as far as risks go? I think so. Certainly high inflation is a concern or in particular over the next year, not so much actual Fed tightening, tightening, but anticipation of Fed type tightening. Um, But having said that, I I do think that investors should still be concerned about the potential for a pandemic resurgence. Uh, What we know is that economies like the U.S. uh, are likely to go unscathed with the spread of the Delta variant because there is a high level of vaccinations, Uh, something we're seeing right now in the U.K., where the Delta variant is spreading, but it's not having much of an impact in terms of hospitalizations or deaths which is great news. Um, But there is always the potential, especially the longer we go without inoculating emerging markets countries, that some variant forms that is not protected against by existing vaccines. And that's really where we have that worst case scenario, uh, the kind of resurgence not dissimilar to what we saw during that first wave. I don't think it will do as much economic damage, but it will do damage. Christina Hooper of Invesco, glad to have you on, kicking off the second half of the year. Christina, we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure, but best to you. And by the way, happy 4th of July. It's in a couple of days now. Thank you. Happy 4th of July, Brian. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, when we come back, more on your money for the second half of the year. And that includes your morning RBI with the good news and maybe the bad news about what to expect. Plus, the morning's big money movers and some big moves by one of the oil industry's key players, what Chevron may be looking to do. And later on, a federal judge dealing a blow to SpaceX in its ongoing fight with the Department of Justice. I'll give you all these stories and more. Dow Futures up 92, and we are back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. 
Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Time now for your big money movers of the morning. And today we're going to give you a bonus four stock stories today because that's just what we do. All right, stock number one, Micron. Shares, they are lower despite the memory chip maker reporting better than expected third quarter results. It is projecting fourth quarter revenue to be above current analyst estimates. They're also selling a plant in Utah to Texas Instruments for about $1.5 billion. All right, stock number two, CureVac. Shares tanking down more than 10% after a final trial shows its COVID-19 vaccine is only 48% effective. CureVac says efficacy is slightly better at 53% when you exclude people over the age of 60. Stock number three, Chevron. CNBC can confirm earlier reports that the company is looking to sell off some Texas oil fields. The deal or deals could be valued at more than a billion dollars. This follows news two weeks ago that Shell is looking to dump out of the Permian Basin entirely. And stock number four, the aforementioned Shell. Reuters says that Shell now plans to exit an oil and gas joint venture with Exxon in California. Exxon and Shell are both higher today. Could be big moves there coming up by Chevron. All right. Coming up right here on Worldwide Exchange, charges formally being filed against the Trump administration and one of its top officials over alleged tax crimes. Plus, police arresting the Tour de France fan whose idiotic sign holding led to one of the greatest wrecks in the history of bike racing. If you have not seen it, you will. Here it is. And you may not believe it. Stick around. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. All right, welcome back. Let's get a check down some of this morning's other top headlines, including charges against former President Trump's company, some individuals. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York now with those. Good morning, Francis. Hey, Brian. Good morning to you. Former President Trump's company is in legal jeopardy today. Sources tell NBC News that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and the New York General's Office together have obtained indictments against the Trump Organization and its chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. The charges are said to be tax-related and are expected to be unsealed in court this afternoon. Last week, an attorney for the Trumps called the impending charges, quote, completely outrageous, saying they were pursued because Weisselberg didn't cooperate with investigators. Britney Spears faces another legal setback. A judge has denied a request to remove her father as a co-conservator of her estate. This after an explosive 24-minute testimony last week. 
Spears detailed her father's alleged abuse and the financial grip over her life. According to her lawyers, she's afraid of her father and has refused to perform as long as he is in charge. Jamie Spears has filed a petition to investigate his daughter's claims and has also raised concern with Jody Montgomery, her other conservator, who oversaw Britney's personal life and medical treatment. His attorney has not commented on the latest legal decision. Yale University says it has received a monetary donation so big that it'll cover tuition for present and future drama students. The Ivy League school says entertainment mogul David Geffen donated $150 million. That is the largest on record in the history of American theater. The school also said it will rename the School of Drama as the David Geffen School of Drama at Yale University. You'd think that they'd throw that in, Brian, you know, with that $150 million price tag to have his name on there. You think that might get you a building. I'm glad. Listen, a great gift by David Geffen, obviously one of the world's most successful guys. I think Yale's endowment is over 35 or 40 billion. So they were they were hanging on by a thread, Francis. Yeah, but those this, students this might just, just keep to them go. Going for a yeah, tuition years. free. It's great. Uh, tuition free sounds pretty good. Yeah. Francis Rivera, thank you very much. Sure thing. All right. A very expensive line of code, an arrest made in that Tour de France pileup. Maybe the coolest video of the day that involves flying cars. Bertha Coombs here now with more on your top trending stories. Bertha, let's do it. You know, we've been dreaming about flying cars since we were kids, right? But let's start out with an update on the story we brought you yesterday regarding the, that NFT of the source code for the World Wide Web. Tim Berners-Lee's code has sold at auction for $5.4 million. Proceeds from that sale, which includes a 30-minute visual representation of the code being written, will go to a charity of the Berners-Lee's choice and to cover the costs of the carbon offset for the minting and transaction costs of the sale. And the woman who allegedly caused a massive crash during the Tour de France has been arrested. The pileup happened after one rider hit her cardboard sign, which the woman was holding on the side of the road. She could face up to two years in prison and a fine of $35,000. That was just a spectacular crash. And the future has finally arrived. The first test flight of a flying car between airports has been successfully completed. The company behind the car, KleinVision, flew it between two cities in Slovakia for 35 minutes. The car has now completed over 40 hours of test flights and has reached a maximum airspeed of 118 miles per hour. That would certainly help the commute to the beach, Brian, if you could just fly out in your own car. It's amazing video. I guess my question is, where do the wings go? It is a car. You can see that. But if we go back to the video, it has wings because generally, unless you're a helicopter, you need those. So where do the like you're driving down the Garden State Parkway to your point? Where where are the wings (laughs) in the trunk? I am not sure. You're just taking up all three lanes of traffic, Bertha, with those things. Watch out. It does kind of look like basically a plane that's a car that probably is not meant to really drive. So it's still not quite I'll tell you, that woman in France wishes she had that because I know part of the problem was, I mean, you don't want to see anybody go to jail. I mean, it was an innocent mistake. The sign said literally something like, I have to think she feels horrible. Well, she ran off was the problem, yeah, I, I, that she fled. Yeah. 
It's just, well, the whole, the whole course, I mean, yesterday they had a protest because the whole course, they just let people get far too close. And clearly, as we can see, it's dangerous. Some people's tours ended with that. Well, I, I, guess, I guess we can say we are truly now, finally, back to normal. Bertha Coombs, thank you. <laughs> See you in a few minutes. Ah, all right, coming up, Boeing going all in on GE with a big new hire for the CFO job. Speaking of big, Dow Futures up 86 points. And by the way, a gentle nudge. Follow our podcast. Check it out every single day. We appreciate the kind reviews. I think we have like a 4.6 or 4.7. Somebody had a one-star one review, Anchor Stinks, or something like this. Either way, check out the podcast. We do appreciate it, and we're back right after this. Kicking off July strong, futures surging to start the second half of the year. Oil in focus as OPEC meets and may finally start to put more crude on the market. As prices soar, Goldman Sachs' Jeff Curry is here. And mind the gap. The store saying au revoir to its stores in parts of Europe as it looks to keep costs and retail cutting and all of it adjusting to the new normal. It is Thursday, July 1st, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Oh, welcome or welcome back and good Thursday morning, everybody. 526 here on the East Coast. Thanks for joining us. And here's how your money and investments look right now as we are not quite halfway through the 5 a.m. hour. And it's looking pretty good to kick off the second half of the year. We are seeing futures up a bit. Dow futures up 100. NASDAQ has come off still mildly positive. But Dow futures, they were up 100 points right now. The jobless claims, the weekly numbers ahead of the monthly numbers tomorrow likely may be the market mover. Although with those monthly numbers out tomorrow, that's likely going to be the driver. All the eyes certainly are on the Fed. All right. Futures are up, and we know it's been a good start to the year. In fact, it's been one of the best starts to a year for stocks in a few years. But as good as it's been, here is something that is also random but interesting. It's only the 15th best start to a year ever for the S&P 500. Kind of hard to believe, given that we're up nearly 15%. So if you tonight want to wow your friends with your market knowledge mastery, Tell them that the best start to a year was a 58% surge back in 1933. And if you care, and even if you don't, we're going to give them to you. Here are the rest of the top four. 1975, the S&P rose 39%, 43%, 26%. And in 1987, 25%. There you see us, 14.5%. You were feeling pretty good about it until you realized just now that it was or the 15th best start. Still, not terrible. Better than being down 14%. Well, speaking of down, bond yields, they are flat to even going down, especially from their highs back in mid-March as well. We are seeing the benchmark tenure still under 1.5%. And the latest CNBC quarterly stock report posing a question on bonds that we've been asking a lot on this show. Where the yield on the tenure will be by the end of the year. A pretty even split. 48% of those surveyed say above 2%. 48% say near current level. Imagine that. Everybody suddenly coming down in their estimates and 3% below 1.5%. By the way, if I answered that survey, which I did not, but if I did, I would make it 4% because I also think we might be below 1.5%. Well, 
Well, we haven't talked about it much lately, but we probably should because the VIX index, the fear gauge, that also continues to come down. I know there's a lot of scary headlines still out there. We've got the pandemic still raging in parts of the world. Thankfully, cases continue to come down here, along with hospitalizations, even with some of the new variants. We are seeing the VIX at 15 and a half, and that is a one-year low on that fear measure. All right, there is a big move in the C-suite by Boeing, which is going all in on a GE executive. Bertha's back with that and more key corporate headlines. Bertha. That's right, Brian. Boeing has named Brian West as its next chief financial officer. West, a veteran of General Electric, will succeed Greg Smith, who is retiring this month after serving as CFO for a decade. West will take over August 27th. It's a bit of a, you know, reunion, if you will. He previously worked with his new boss, Boeing CEO David Calhoun, at GE and Nielsen. West will be tasked with leading both out of the pandemic, which resulted in the company suffering a record loss last year. A federal judge has ruled that Elon Musk's SpaceX must comply with a Department of Justice subpoena over the company's hiring records. The ruling is the latest chapter in the ongoing legal fight over whether the company discriminates against applicants based on their citizenship status. The judge says SpaceX, which did not immediately respond to CNBC's request for comment, has three weeks to comply with that ruling. And Gap is scaling back its presence in Europe. The retailer saying it will close all brick-and-mortar stores in the U.K. and Ireland, shifting to an online-only model by the end of September. Gap is also reportedly in talks with its partners to sell its stores in Italy and France. You know, Brian, the company says it's working to find new, more cost-effective ways to maintain a presence and serve customers in Europe. But this comes just as they're starting to launch the Yeezy line. So folks who are fans of that are going to have to wait a little more, I guess, and wait to get it through the post. I have one question about the Yeezy line, Bertha. What is the Yeezy line? The Yeezy line, that is their collaboration with Kanye West. It's highly anticipated. Oh, Yeezy. I thought you said easy. I was like, is this at leisure? Like, easy, like, it's kind of loose fitting because a lot of people have changed their body shape. I was just going to say, where have you been, Brian? You're usually on top of all the trends. I'm getting old, Bertha. Gotta throw that out there. I'm, I'm. Aren't we all? I'm listening to Sticks, eight tracks in my Camaro. I mean, just things are. It's, it's, <laughs> I turned 50 in three weeks. By the way, I will say this: Becky Quick is one day older than I am, and and I know this: Becky Quick will always be <laughs> one day older than I am. Bertha Coops. <laughs> Happy early birthday to Becky. I'm doomed now. Bertha, thank you very much. All right, coming up: a dud from Didi and high hopes for Doe. From Donuts, Leslie, American Picker, is here laying out the big IPO landscape coming up. We're back in a moment. I may be gone forever. You may not see me after this commercial break, but if you do, Dow Futures are up 106. All right, welcome or welcome back. 535 here on the East Coast. There are some of the Dow laggards, if you want to call them that. I mean, Apple was down eight one-hundredths of one percent. Strong first half of the year for most of the Dow components. Apple, 
One of the names that probably disappointed a lot of investors, not so Microsoft. Microsoft surging, joining the $2 trillion market cap club as well. Intel down slightly this morning. For the gainer side, because we are seeing Dow futures up 101 points. Well, there's the S&P laggards as well. Again, that is this morning. No real huge moves. S&P up 14.5% so far this year. Very good start to the year, but as we showed you earlier, it's actually only the 15th best start to a year. Kind of hard to believe. And by the way, your morning RBI coming up in just a moment has got more on what history says. In fact, why don't we do it right now, shall we? Because today's RBI has both good news and bad news. And whenever you get that question, which one do you want first? Well, I, I think you want the bad news first, of course, right? And the news comes via LPL Financial and some great market stats to help you for the rest of the year. All right. The third quarter, the one we just started today, is historically the worst quarter of the year for the S&P 500. Now, it does rise, but it's got an average gain going back to, what, 1950 of less than 1%. And less than a quarter of the gain for the historically best quarter of the year, and that is, of course, the fourth quarter. So, according to LPL, do not expect much from the markets the next couple of months, so says history. But now you want the good news, and here it is. When the S&P 500 is up more than 12.5% in the first six months of the year, like this year, it tends to be a really, really good sign for the rest of the year. LPL found that in the 17 previous times, we have gained more than 12.5% by July 1st. The index rose the rest of the year, 75% of the time, with a median gain of just under 10% for the rest of the year. That is nearly double what we normally gain. Okay, you're thinking, Sully, I just woke up. I've not even had a cup of coffee yet. You're throwing a lot of numbers at me. I get it. So here's the keep it simple take. History says, based on what happened in the first half of the year, we could have a big, nice second half of the year. But the next couple of months, July, August, the dog days, they could be a bit choppy. Stay focused. Random and hopefully relevant. All right, a perfect segue to your next guest, Emily Bowersock-Hill of Bowersock Capital Partners, joining us now. And Emily, as we've all heard in commercials a billion times, past performance is no guarantee of future gains. But history is on our side. You like the stats. Are you bullish for the second half of the year? I am bullish for the second half of the year, primarily because the I'm very positive on the American consumer. Uh, as I think you know, uh, consumer spending is about 70% of GDP. And I think the typical American is going to go nuts post-pandemic. And I think there's a really strong desire to go out and experience life after having been cooped up for a very long period of time. And I think the savings rate that we've seen from American consumers has been substantial, and I think there's a lot of money in their pockets. You know, we've already seen spending on consumer goods rise about 20% from February 2020, right before the pandemic started. So I think that is a positive indicator. I, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, listen, it's just anecdotal. A couple of weeks ago, I tried to go to a mall in New Jersey, gave up because I was too lazy to park as far away as I had to, Emily, 
because there were so many people at the mall. Now it was also 100 degrees, and I think people just want to do something with air conditioning. But it was mind-blowing. All right, so let's talk about some individual ideas. One of the big, maybe not surprises of the year, is a company called Shopify taking on Amazon. Now everybody is kind of looking for maybe the next Shopify. You've identified a company called Big Commerce. I've heard the name, don't know a whole lot about them. Who are they? Why do you like them? Well, first of all, I should say that we are not necessarily stock pickers and we're believers in long-term asset uh, allocation and sticking to your strategy. But that being said, we are always looking for, you know, the next company that is going to be a breakout. Uh, And Big Commerce is a Shopify competitor, and I am a big fan of the management team. The CEO, Brent Belm, was a contemporary of mine at McKinsey. And that management team is not going to fail. They established a partnership with Walmart earlier this year and have been growing very substantially. I think they're on fire. And they IPO, they're one of a group of companies that IPO'd in 2020 and then got caught up in, you know, the retail trading frenzy. It hit a high and, you know, up in the 160s and it's fallen by well over half. So I think it's a good opportunity for you know, for a five-year-plus hold, I'm, uh, I'm really excited about their prospects. And in my opinion, they're going to be the next Shopify. Okay, big commerce there. And, and again, I know you, I understand you are not necessarily a straight stock picker, but there are companies that you do identify through macro trends. And listen, yes, Emily, we're coming out of the pandemic. And one of the predictions that I made back in December was that, you know, and it's not some great wisdom is that there's still a lot of bad stuff out there, even when COVID's gone. And we're getting a lot of diseases that we are going to have to solve and we're going to have to fight, healthcare, biotech, et cetera. There's a company called Schrodinger, not a biotech themselves, but they are a software company, a company that helps companies figure out and fight some of these diseases, SDGR. That's another name I think you like for long-term. Again, not a trade. You're not a trader, but a long-term structural hold. Yes, I would put Schrodinger in the category of disruptive technology or disruptive software. And this is a company that was backed pretty early on by Bill Gates. And the Gates Foundation bought shares as recently as February. Investors were disappointed with their guidance in March. So the stock has has fallen substantially from the high. But this is a company that invests very aggressively in R&D. And they have arrangements with 20 out of the out of 20 of the top pharma companies basically they're looking they have developed a computational model for identifying new molecules which is going to really propel the biotech industry and frankly drug discovery in general yeah sdgr schrodinger there it's had kind of a tough year but you you want to buy things that are on the lower side and a structural long-term play perhaps there and with big commerce, bullish on the markets and the U.S. consumer. Emily Bowersock Hill. Emily, it's a real pleasure to, to have you back on, kicking off the second half of the year. Nice Thank you. Again. All right, look forward to seeing everybody around a table in person at some point as well soon, Emily. Thank you very much. All right, on deck. Leslie Picker is here to lay out a big week for IPOs. We've had a lot, and we got a lot more to come. And as we head to break, what some of you believe are the biggest risks to the market ahead. And it's not the pandemic. It's cases and hospitalizations continue to crash around the country. Here it is. According to our latest stock survey, 
42% of you say inflation, 21% say a Fed taper. Why don't we add those together? It's kind of the same thing. That'd be 63%, only 27% saying a COVID resurgence. And 9% of you, just 9 worried about rampant retail speculation as a macro market risk. Dow futures up about 100. We're back to talk IPOs next. Well, despite huge hopes for a new stock surge, shares of Chinese ride-hailing company Didi, eh, kind of a dud in its debut. But there is still hope for a big IPO, this one involving Big Doe over Donuts. Along now with more on this IPO market, which has really turned up, Leslie Picker joining us now with more. Didi, I guess it wasn't. Is that mean? Leslie, it wasn't really a dud, but it maybe wasn't this just boom that a lot of people thought. Right. And it, it did well when it first came out. It was up 29 percent. Uh, but then, you know, over the course of the day, we do tend to see this from time to time. Uh, it wound up ticking down a bit, closing just over one percent. Uh, but Didi is one of a bunch of IPOs this week. We're looking at about 17 deals. Uh, that makes it tied for the busiest week going back to 2006. Now, Didi is the largest IPO amid that cohort. Uh, the Chinese ride-hailing giant raised more than $4 billion in an upsized deal after spiking nearly 29%. As we talked about, shares closed just over 1% above their IPO price, giving Didi a market cap of $68 billion as of yesterday's trading. Now, among those other deals on deck, and you kind of alluded to this, Brian, Krispy Kreme, the 84-year-old donut maker, raising $500 million, selling more shares, but they did price below the marketed range. The IPO price of $17 per share implies a valuation of about $2.7 billion. Not too shabby, though. That's still twice the price tag that JAB purchased it for five years ago. Now, nonetheless, the company's top line growth of about 15 percent, lack of profitability, uh, uh, you know, combined with the broader trend toward healthier eating made investors balk at the marketed price range. Its shares will be listed on the NASDAQ under the symbol DNUT. Now, these deals and the multitude of others this week come amid near record-breaking second quarter. 113 deals were listed in 2Q, making it the most active, Brian, since 2000. These listings generated $40 billion in Recent IPOs have been bid up as well recently, rebounding relative to the S&P since May. More on the way in the pipeline, Duolingo uh, and Outbrain filing their prospectuses this week with more in the wings, including Robinhood, Sweetgreen, Orby Parker. Uh, there's no evidence that this IPO market, very open, is slowing down anytime soon, Brian. Okay, I got a couple of questions for you. Number one, why are we seeing this big rush in offerings right now? I guess just board bankers are still working. And is there any indication that all its legal troubles may have hurt any interest or demand for Robinhood? It certainly does not appear so. It's a good question. With these types of things, it's usually good to have a number put on it, the $70 million. It's kind of one of those things that investors will say, okay, we know what that is. That takes away some of the uncertainty. So we can now model what we want to pay for this company. Uh, so that is kind of the situation with Robinhood. Um, as for why this is happening now, well, you saw the, the outperformance of recent IPOs. Oftentimes that begets 
more IPOs. Investors are feeling good. They've generated alpha on their previous IPO investments. They may be willing to buy more. Typically, the window closes when you do start to see some underperformance. I don't know if Didi was necessarily a huge success for investors who bought into the IPO, but you know when you do start to see deals trade lower and people losing money, that's when the window tends to close. There could be a little bit of a, a you know a tendency to take advantage of the the lower capital gains rates as well. Leslie Picker with a big look there at the IPO market and donuts on the way. Leslie, thank you very much. Great to see you as always. <laughs> thank you. Good to see you. All right. Well, today is a big day for oil and gas. OPEC and OPEC Plus are meeting virtually to talk about future production. And right now, OPEC seems to hold all the cards. Oil prices have nearly doubled in the past nine months. And the world is watching and waiting for some kind of output increase from the group. Remember, they did the emergency cut of more than two million barrels per day during the height of the lockdowns and pandemic. Now, the whisper is a likely jump in production of about 500,000 barrels a day beginning in August, maybe a little more. But given the huge surge in global demand, would that be enough to keep prices from hitting 80 a barrel or even more? Let us welcome in Goldman Sachs' global head of commodities research, Jeff Curry. Jeff, always a pleasure to have you on. An important day to have you on. What is your expectation from OPEC and OPEC Plus today? Well, we're in line with that consensus view of an increase of 500,000 a day. But to answer your question, is that enough? It's a resounding no. Um, During the month of June, we estimate that the market was in a 2.3 million barrel per day deficit. That's the biggest since last summer, which is representative of that surge in demand that you're referring to. The bottom line, demand is surging as we go into the summer travel season. Um, And that is against a nearly inelastic supply curve. You know, drilling was down last week in the U.S. It's not enough to break even against the decline rates. Um, 25% of OPEC can't even reach their quota right now because of a lack of investment. And there's no hope of non-OPEC ex-U.S. growing supply. So that really leaves core OPEC, meaning the GCC countries, as the only game in town. That is a really, really interesting point you just made, Jeff, which is we talk about adding more barrels to the market. It sounds like because of lack of investment, There may be nations, not Saudi Arabia, not Russia, but other OPEC members that simply, it sounds like, can't or at least can't add much. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, let's go back to, you know, you had negative oil prices, you know, a little over a year ago. Um, That created a sharp decline in CapEx. Now, that multiplied what was already happening pre-COVID because of really bad returns in the sector. Um, You take a place like the, the shale oil patch in the U.S., It hasn't seen growth in investment since third quarter of 2018. That's a long time ago. So you you, you have that lack of investment going into COVID, the negative oil prices and a massive drop in investment. And now we're beginning to see the impact of that lack of investment at the same time demand's growing. So it's creating a really tight market. Inventories are dropping very quickly, which leaves this market really exposed to upside price spikes as we go into peak summer travel season. Yeah, what are you seeing from global demand, Jeff? A lot of questions, obviously, about the Delta variant sweeping through Latin America, Australia back on lockdowns. What is your overall demand guess or guesstimate or estimate for the rest of the year? Um, The core of this is the recovery taking place in the developed markets. And, you know, in the U.S., domestic jet um, is back up to pretty much pre-COVID levels. And that's not even with the international travel. 
Um, it, we have the Delta variant in Europe that's going to slow the progress there, um, but we're seeing a recovery taking place in Europe. And you have China all the way back above pre-COVID domestic jet. So jet was the weak link going into this time period. On net, we estimate that global oil demand is running around 97.5 million barrels per day. Um, that's against 100 million barrel per day pre-COVID level. Um, but more importantly, that's a jump from just 95 million barrels per day several weeks ago, which is an indication just how fast demand is surging right now, which is, again, you know, our base case is an $80 a barrel average price there in 3Q, but there's a lot of risk to the upside around mm. that. Yeah, and looking at uh, your recent note here about OPEC production, by the way, always a must read. You guys do great work. Thank you very much for that. I mean, you're looking at demand and you're looking at Iran, Jeff. And a lot of people throw Iran out and they say, well, once the Iranian barrels hit the market, that's going to change the game. Your note notes that Iran, if they come back on, could probably put a million back on the open market. And if you've got a deficit to your numbers of 2.2, it doesn't sound like even a, an Iran back out there is enough to really change supply demand and likely not really change prices that much. Yeah, I mean, if, if you go back to six months ago and you asked us and the rest of the market, the view is that the U.S. shale patch would have much higher rig counts right now, particularly at an oil price of $75 a barrel. Um, so we would have both Iran and a, sh- a surge in shale that was likely to be able to accommodate the rise in demand. Um, there's a high probability we don't get the Iran right now, given the issues around the IAEA um, um, inspectors. Um, and the fact of the matter is we don't have high enough rig counts in the U.S. to get the shale. So right now, the only thing you could bank on is maybe 300,000 barrels per day of extra shale going into year end. Um, there's a question market around Iran, and we have demand surging another 2.2 million barrels per day going into year end. That leaves a really tight market, um, which really, again, you have to rely upon core OPEC in Russia, meaning OPEC plus the core group as being the, the potential ability to deliver that kind of supply increase. Otherwise, inventories yeah, drop OPEC. and prices spike. O- OPEC plus is really OPEC and Russia plus Mexico mm-hmm. and a few other marginal producers. What's Russia's role, Jeff? What are they going to do? Because they want market share. They're not as concerned about price. They want to pump. They want to pump, but they also the things they have an election coming up and they're going to be somewhat worried about inflationary pressures. Um, But I think in terms of their ability to do this unilaterally, um, you know, they could add what they want on. And the view we've taken is once demand really begins to surge going into year end, uh, you know, it becomes we need all that supply out there as much as you possibly can. In our base cases, we have. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia by early next year, back up into that, you know, 9.5 going towards um, 10 million barrels per day range. Um, so we expect to see, you know, that the, the supply come on market. You need it um, to be able to curtail any significant you know, upside surges. So um, our, our base case is this supply does come online as we go into year end. Um, but the question is the timing of it relative to the rise in demand. Yeah. Well, we're going to find out a bit later on today. Generally, that decision comes down kind of around 11 a.m. Eastern time-ish. But you never know with OPEC. Jeff Curry, we appreciate you looking into your crystal ball. Jeff, thanks to you and your team. And thank you for coming on. We'll see you again. And we'll be covering that OPEC meeting later on today. See if more barrels go on the market or it gets tighter and prices go up. All right. Well, that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. There is a lot coming up on Squawk Box as well. 
I'm off the show tomorrow, but I'll see you on the noon show as well and all day today covering OPEC. Have a great day. Squawk is next. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.